Well, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for the opportunity, Pastor, to be here today. And I'm looking forward to our time together. I hope you're planning to come back tonight. I want to preach tonight concerning how through difficult times you can live victoriously through the life of Christ that lives in you. So I hope you'll come back. Romans 8, 37. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. But this morning, if you have your Bible, let's look together at Romans 6. Romans 6, 7, and 8 are the three most important chapters for you to study concerning how to live the Christian life. The argument that Paul is presenting is that if you understand grace, grace will never lead you to sin. Grace will always cause you to not only live transparently, but live in a transformed life. And so he emphasizes that because they misunderstood what he taught in chapter 5. He said to them in chapter 5, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds, and they were good Baptists. They interpreted that to mean that the way to magnify grace is to sin. And Paul starts out chapter 6 saying, if you think I taught that and I said that, you misunderstood everything I said. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Let me give you my translation. you got to be kidding. Amen? And so you, you really need to understand grace. Now, grace in my definition is more than a provision. Grace is a person. Now, how do I know that? Titus 2.11, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. The grace of God that appeared to all men was Christ. Christ is grace. Grace is a person. But let's uh, look at three verses for time's sake this morning, and I want to preach concerning what I consider New Testament revival. Would you stand with me for the reading of his word? I'll begin reading at verse 6. I'm going to have three key words in my sermon. The first one's right there in verse 6, knowing. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin, notice the word it's, sin is singular. That means he's speaking here of the sinful nature. That the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin or we should not serve the sinful nature. Verse 11, another key word. Likewise, reckon. No, reckon. Second key word. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now let's read that again. Reckon, it's a banking term. It means to put to your account. So put to your account the fact that you're dead to your sinful nature. Now, it didn't say your sinful nature's dead. It says that you're dead to your sinful nature. Why are you dead to your sinful nature? Because you died in verse 6. So the results of you dying with Christ is that you no longer want this sinful nature to dominate you. Look at verse 13. 
neither yield. There's the third key word. No, reckon, yield. Let's all say it together. No, reckon, yield. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. Now let's ask this question. What are the members? Somebody look at me. What is that? So your members are the gates of your body. And so what he's speaking of here is that you're not to allow your eyes You're, you're, you're not to allow your body to be an instrument of unrighteousness. Same principle of Romans 12, 1 and 2. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Lord, open our eyes that we might see your truth Embrace it, engraft it in our inner man, enlighten us, but God also leave us different than when we came. And God, do a work that only you can do. And God, get me out of the way. And God, may Jesus be glorified. In your name we pray. Amen. I want to preach this morning on what I call the principle of New Testament revival. One word says the Bible speaks to you basically in four ways. Biblical principles, promises, precepts, and paradoxes. And so you find in this particular text what I would call the principle of New Testament revival, but to give it the right title, it's really a paradoxical principle. Now, what is a paradox? A paradox is something that seems to be contradictory to what we think or the world says, but yet it is biblical in every aspect of definition. Let me tell you where there is plenty of paradoxes in Scripture, and maybe you haven't thought about them, but just think about with, with me for a moment. In order to be first, you have to be... In order to be first, you have to be last. In order for you to win, you have to... So when's the last time you heard a sermon on being a loser? In order to win, you have to lose. In order to be first, you have to be last. In order for you to be strong, you must be. So God's not looking for strong people. He's searching for weak people so that he can be their strength. In order for you to bear fruit, you must. Most people don't know that. My wife's uh, one of her favorite uh, persons that she likes to read is Amy Carmichael. And uh, Elizabeth Elliot wrote her life story. And uh, one of my favorite verses in my wife's is John 12, 24, except a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die. It abideth alone, but if it dies, it'll bear fruit. So the way to bear fruit is to die. Could it be the reason we're not seeing more fruit bearing is because we know very little about what it is to die to self. Well, what is the New Testament paradoxical principle of revival. It's the same principle that Jesus taught. Jesus said, except ye take up your cross daily and die. 
You're not one of my disciples. So I want to preach this morning on the paradoxical principle of New Testament revival, which is dying to live. Now, as we look at this text, there's three things that were connected to these three words that make up my points. First of all, I'll talk to you about the necessity for you to have spiritual illumination. You must have spiritual illumination. Now, look at, underline that word no. To know is to have spiritual illumination. Now, where do you know things spiritually? You say, well, you know things intellectually, spiritually. No, you don't understand the house that you have. See, you're made up of a three-room house. According to 1 Thessalonians 5.23, you are spirit, soul, and body. According to Ephesians 1.17 and 18, God has to enlighten you, not in your soul, but in your spirit. Now, your spirit was quickened the moment God saved you because your spirit was dead, pre-salvation. But one of the works that God did for you when he saved you was he quickened your dead spirit, and he made you alive, and then the Holy Spirit came to live in your spirit, and God began to communicate to you. That's why the Bible says in Romans 8, 16, your spirit and God's spirit bear witness, and you also communicate. You say, how does that happen? Well, when the Lord saved me, the Holy Spirit said, I just saved you. And I said, whoo, amen. I mean, God communicates to you. And you say, how do you know you're saved? Well, I know that I'm saved. I can't explain to you how I know because if I knew how I knew, I wouldn't know. But I do know, amen. And if God saved you, it's wonderful, is it not? And so God wants to give you this illumination. He wants you to know some things. Now listen to this principle. Information without spiritual illumination is just a bunch of education. But information biblically with illumination spiritually results in transformation of life. And so God wants you to grow in your knowledge of Him. But in order for you to grow in the knowledge of Him, the only way it can happen is not necessarily through a preacher giving you information. It's through a preacher teaching and preaching and you studying on your own and the Spirit of God giving you the education and information so that you can be transformed in life. Now, what does God want you to have spiritual illumination of in this text? Two things. First of all, your union with Christ. Your union with Christ. Go back with me to verse 3. Know ye not, there's that word again, that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Now, let's just take a point of emphasis here. If you think that that's talking about water baptism, you've misunderstood the text. If you understand that the hermeneutics of this text would tell us that the doctrine of sanctification is being taught, you're not sanctified by being baptized in water. He is speaking here of spirit baptism. Now, Lewis Schaefer in his systematic theology says there's 34 to 36 things that happened to you when you were converted. 
that you had nothing to do with. One of them is spirit baptism. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that every one of us who are saved have been baptized by the Spirit into Christ. You say, well, what do you mean spirit baptism? Not, not any Old Testament saint was spirit baptized. No one was spirit baptized until Pentecost. So what happened when you were spirit baptized? God took you out of Adam. That's who you were born in. And God carried you to heaven. And he merged you into Jesus. Took Jesus out of heaven and he merged him into you. You're right now seated in Christ in the heavenlies. How did you get there? Spirit baptism. God emerged you into Jesus. God emerged Jesus into you. And if you think you can lose your salvation, how are you going to carry yourself up there and disconnect yourself? I mean, God has done so much for you, it's ridiculous. Amen? I mean, God has been good to you. You have been united with Christ forever. You can't get out of Him, and He can't get out of you. He has sealed you with Himself, and He has come to live in you. There is a union here with Christ. But not only you find your union with Christ in this text, and that's something you need to know. And I would agree with John Owen. Maybe the most blessed fact that you can find out after you're saved is that you have a union with Christ that can never be severed. Not only your union with Christ, but also see that you participated with Christ. Now listen carefully. I'm going to say some things that's probably going to intrigue you a little bit. I don't think the Bible teaches imitation Christianity in the New Testament. For the most part in America, that's taught and around the world. Now, what do you mean imitation Christianity? Most people think that you get saved and you try to be like Jesus. How's that working for you? How's that working for you? The Bible teaches not imitation Christianity, but participation. Now that means that you participated with Jesus Christ in death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Now ascension's not in this text, but these first three are in the text. And that you died when Jesus died. And now his life, which is not imitation, his life has come to live in you. And you live by the life of Christ. You say, where do you find that? Galatians 2.20, Colossians 1.27. Well, I can give you some other ones. How about 1 John 5.12? He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son hath not life. You now possess the life of Christ. If you're spirit-filled, then the life of Christ then possesses you. In other words, he controls you from the inside out. But the Bible teaches participation. Now, we're going to deal with just one aspect of participation in verse 6. Let's look at verse 6 again. Knowing this, that our old man, now let's ask this question. 
What is the old man? Now, most preachers and some people will say that the old man is your sinful nature. Cannot be. Now, the reason it cannot be is because in verse 11, your sinful nature is still alive. 1 John 1, 8 through 10, your sinful nature is still alive. So it couldn't be your sinful nature that died. Let me explain to you who the old man is. The old man is the person you were before you were saved. Now, who were you before you were saved? You were in Adam. And because of the fall, and you need to study chapter 5, verses 12 through the end of the chapter, you'll find out when Adam sinned, you sinned. And that the consequences of Adam's sin was passed on to you. And that you have to get out of Adam but one of the things that Adam was left with is what every one of you were born with. Write this down if you want to take notes. This is important. Every person here was born making decisions based on what's to your advantage. Lord, you're selfish. Some of you still are. And we all inherited that from Adam. Now, God didn't save you that you would be self-centered. God saved you that you would be God-centered. God created you for himself, and God wants you to be centered upon him. But in order for God to get you centered upon him, God evaluated you and said you had to die. Now, when did you die? Knowing this, that our old man, the person who made decisions based on what was to your advantage died. When did you die? Knowing this, look at your scripture. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. Let me ask this simple question. Let's just exegete the text. When did Jesus die? Somebody say 2,000 years ago. That's everybody said. Almost 2,000 years ago. So when did you die? It's in, a Greek te- it's in a Greek tense, which means this. There was a day that you died. There'll never be a day that you're not dead. You are eternally crucified. Now, there's two different Greek words for the word with in the New Testament. One's the word son. The other is the word meta. One means that you're a part of and can never be distinct from. The other means that you're a part of and can never be severed from. Which one do you think is used here? So here's what happened. God knew that when Jesus died, he placed all of his sins All of your sins on him. All of your sins, not his sins. All of your sins were placed upon Christ. But that only took care of half of your problem. Now we in the church make much of that and we should. It's called the atoning blood sacrifice of Christ. And I believe there's no forgiveness of sin without the rich red royal blood of Christ being shed. But I want to say to you that we've missed out on this part for a great deal. 
And that is there's two aspects of the cross. There's the first aspect that he died for you. But this text says he died as you. Because you still have a problem. Even though your sins are forgiven, you got this so sinful nature that you deal with every day. You got this self-centered nature whereby you still, if you walk in the flesh, you can make choices based on what's to your advantage. God didn't intend for you to live that way. And so God allowed you to die before you was born. So 2,000 years ago, God looked at you and knew that you'd be. And he allowed you to die before you were so that when you would be, he could save you and allow you to die before you die. So that you can live before you live. Now, some of you are not getting this, are you? The reason you're not maybe understanding this is because you've never given much thought to the fact that you died when Jesus died. So God allowed you to participate with Christ in death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And that is your position of participation and identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you know that? Not only you have spiritual illumination that you must know, let's move on quickly. You must then have what I call decisional application. Now, what do I mean by decisional application? Stay with me for a minute. If you know that you died when Jesus died, then why don't you get up in the morning and report to God, DOA? Now, here's how most of you try to live the Christian life. Lord, I'm getting up today and I'm dedicating my life for you. Boy, how's that working for you? Why would you dedicate a life that God said had to die? Why would you dedicate a life that Jesus said three times you're to hate your life? You know there's two different Greek words used for life. There's the Greek word psychos and there's the Greek word zoe. Zoe means the life of God. Why don't you get up in the morning and report to God, DOA, dead on arrival, thank him that you died when he died, and ask him to live Zoe life through you. There's a huge difference between you living your life for God and God living his life through you. And New Testament revival is simply what Roy Hessian said, and that is Christ who lives in me by the Spirit, possessing me daily, that he might manifest through me his very own life. And so it's the life of Christ being lived out through you. Now, look with me in verse 11. Likewise reckon. Now, that's a good, good Greek word there. Put to your account. Let me just translate for you. If you know that you died, Write a check on it all day. Every day of your life, write a check on the fact that you're dead. Now, what are you dead to? You're dead to your sinful nature. Now, your sinful nature's not dead. 
but you're alive in Jesus, and now you have the ability through yieldedness to Jesus and surrender for him to get access to you and live his life through you. And what are you to do? You are to reckon, write a check on the fact that you're dead. Now, I don't have time to get into the text, but basically he illustrates this in three ways in chapter 6 and the first part of 7. Here it is, a subject to a new king. You find that in verse 12. Verse 13 and following, you're a slave to a new master. Now, I want to ask you a question. If you're a slave and you're dead to yourself and you have a new master living inside of you, then what's true about slaves and a master relationship that would connect to you reckoning yourself dead? This may be a little bit deep for some of you because you need to think about it. If you reckon yourself daily, what does that look like? How many of you would like to know whether Jesus Christ is living his life through you? Would you raise your hand? I'd like to take, I'd like to take a, a, a checkup this morning and find out, is Jesus Christ living his life through me? Am I reckoning myself dead? There's four things that will be true about you if that's happening. First of all, you're living in the reality that you have no rights. No rights. A slave has how many rights? None. Do you have a right to your body? Do you have a right to your time? Do you have a right to your thoughts? Do you have any rights? You have one. The only right you have is to obey the will of God. But you're bought with a price. You're to write a check on the fact that you're dead. You have no rights. So that means that we could move your Sunday school class without asking you. If you don't believe people have rights, you just be in charge of the heat and air conditioning of the church. You have no rights. You don't even have the right sometimes to be right. Eodius and Synthica over there in the book of Philippians, they were both at odds with each other. What did Paul say to those ladies? He said, let your moderation be known. Esteem the other above yourself. Now, how many of you have been married or are married? Raise your hand. Have you found out that there's times that your wife is wrong? But you'll never tell her she's wrong because you'll never convince her she's wrong. See, you let her be right even though she's wrong. Well, the same works with the other. I mean, if you have been married long enough to realize there is things that you allow each other flexibility with. I mean, there's no doubt if a skunk and an elephant got in a fight, who'd win, but he'd never smell the same. Listen. <laughs> Most people are brought up in America, listen carefully, you're brought up in this country from the moment you were birthed into America and you were taught that you have what? And so therefore you took 
American citizenship thinking into the church and into your Christian life, and you think that you have rights. Now, I'm grateful that I live in a country that somebody thought that I could have some rights as far as being a citizen. But as far as being a citizen of another country, and I'm not really at home here, I'm an alien, I have no rights. Secondly, I have no reputation. If I'm dead and I'm reckoning myself dead and I'm writing a check that I'm dead and I'm living as a slave to a new master, I have no reputation. The Bible says in Philippians 2 that Jesus made himself of what? No reputation. You could translate it this way. Jesus, the God of heaven, made himself a slave, took the form of a servant, and became a nobody. You'll never walk with Jesus as long as you think you're somebody. Jesus gave up his reputation. You'd do well to give up yours. Thirdly, not only no rights, no reputation, but to reckon yourself dead means that you have no resources. How many of you believe that everything you have belongs to Jesus? then why do you get upset when somebody steals it? Why do you get upset when somebody asks you for it? I didn't hear anybody clapping a while ago when the preacher's talking about giving this big offering next week. In fact, some of you is holding on to Abraham Lincoln so tight, he's like the Civil War starting all over again. <laughs> and so, you know, here's what... How many believe everything you have belongs to Jesus? I was preaching out in Mississippi. My wife called me. We lived in Charlotte. I lived in Charlotte for a long time on the east side of Charlotte Indian Trail. Lived there for a long time. And my wife calls me. I'm out in Mississippi doing a meeting on a Saturday night. I'd just flown out there. She said, Ron, you wouldn't believe what just happened. So this young boy, our daughter was up studying. She's going to UNCC at the time. And she looked out the window, and a young man knocked out the window in our Cherokee Jeep, hot-wired it, and stole it. I said, well, honey, did he, did he bother the family? No. I said, did he take anything else? We can't see that he did. I said, have you called the police? She said, I have. I said, are they there yet? She said, no. I said, well, let's pray. I said, Lord, somebody stole your Jeep. If I had one, I'd be upset. <laughs> I don't know what you're going to do, but you got a problem. <laughs> I preach this around the country. My son pastors a church in Alabama. He's 42 now, but when he was in high school, he went to Northside there in Charlotte. And so I lived there in Charlotte, and my son went to Northside. My son came into my bedroom one morning. He said, Daddy, I want to wear this sweatshirt to school. And I said, Son, that's my favorite. It's one I like to play golf in. I said, you can't wear that one. You can wear one of these other ones over here. He said, Daddy, I thought all these sweatshirts belonged to Jesus. <laughs> I said, Son, every one of these sweatshirts belonged to Jesus except for that one right there. And I said, you keep the head up. And I never will forget, he looked at me and he said, Preach to me, Big Daddy, preach to me. I mean, listen, let's be honest. 
We know these things to be true, but we don't live in the reality of them. Fourthly, if you're reckoning yourself dead, the decision that you make every day and apply the fact that you died in verse 6, because it's a decisional. You have to volitional, volitionally make a decision every day to die. Amy Carmichael said it this way, look at everything as an opportunity to die. So when your supervisor asks you to do something you don't want to do, if it's not morally wrong, it's a chance for you to what? Without grumbling. Won't you try this in your marriage? Because the fourth one is the kicker. If you're dead to yourself and you reckon yourself dead, you have no resentments. That means you don't live in the past, and that means that you are a forgiving, loving person. Now, most people who preach forgiveness, they don't understand that you don't have the ability other than Christ in you who has forgiven you to forgive others. And they try to do it on their own. But basically, you can only forgive others if you've been forgiven. And Christ in you enables you to forgive others. Some of them are just at your house. Thanksgiving. Are you going to see them Christmas? Some of the most difficult relationships you have is with family. I often wondered when I pastored why most people got backslid during, vaca- dur- during a holiday season. It's because they're coming. Is there anybody right now that you have some unforgiveness toward? Well, let me go to my last point and I'll be finished. Once there's spiritual illumination, knowing, decisional application, reckoning, There has to be continual consecration, and that's yielding. Now, yielding also has the connotation of giving up the right to yourself. It's presenting your body every day a living sacrifice. Here's the truth. God wants to get access to you to live his life through you. God never intended for you to live the Christian life. I'll say that again. God never intended for you to live the Christian life. Why would he allow you to be crucified if he thought you could do it? Why would he give you his life if he thought you could live your life for him? The only thing God provided for you was a cross where you died. Now, what's the key to you yielding every member of your body to Jesus? The key's brokenness. You'll never know continual consecration until you know brokenness. Yieldedness. Surrender. 
had a man to come preach for me when I was in Greensboro. I'd met him through a missionary by the name of Miss Bertha Smith. She was a missionary to China. She had a little place in Cowpen, South Carolina. I pastored in Anderson, South Carolina for eight years. And I met this man through Miss Bertha. She introduced him to me. His name was Joseph Carroll. He wrote a book called How to Worship Jesus Christ, which I consider one of the five top books I ever read. And I carry it on a book table as I travel. But I invited him to come preach for me in Greensboro. It was on a Tuesday night during a meeting. We had about 800 or so present. I'll never forget what he preached that night and what he said. It's documented in my mind, in my heart. It summarizes what I'm trying to teach you here this morning. He preached that Tuesday night on not when did you get saved, not when were you baptized, not when did you join the church, but when did you die? And I'll never forget, he's an Australian. He had that British accent. He was a missionary to Japan. Came back to the States. He married an American girl. He walked down to where I was seated. And he got right in front of me. Pointed his finger at me. Young man. Young man. When did you die? When did it cease to be your life on your terms for your sake? When did it become his life on his terms? For his sake. Can I ask you this morning? When did you die? You died 2,000 years ago. You died positionally when you were converted. But this morning, you need to attend your death. Give up the rights to yourself. Make yourself of no reputation. Give all that you are freely and fully to him. 
unconditionally, unreservedly. And deal with the unforgiveness in your heart toward anybody. I want to stop right here before we give the invitation. I want to say this and I want you to hear it. If you're turned off by what you heard this morning, and this doesn't register with you, and you're not willing to die, don't you dare tell anybody you belong to Jesus tomorrow. Because you're not one of his disciples. But if you're willing to die today, let's stand together. Standing together with our heads bowed and our eyes closed as our Musicians come. Pastors here, this altar's open.